0: Hello, and welcome to Wonderful. I'm David Pearl, the founder of Street Wisdom, and this is a podcast we've designed for anyone who wants to get some inspiration on the go. Today, a lot of us are listening to podcasts while we walk. Wonderful is a podcast designed specifically for that, a podcast to walk to, something to put a bit of wonder in your wonder. You're welcome to listen to this as you wander around your home or lying on the sofa even. You'll find inspiration is actually everywhere. But if you've got a bit of time, and let's face it, we've all got a bit of time, let's boot up and head out into the street. So hello there, wandery stars, Wanderellas, wonderfellas, lovers of the wonder all. Hello, buongiorno. I am in Italy. Um, I'm in the town square of Asti which is a city in Northern Italy and uh, it's market day. So you can hear in the background, hopefully, a little bit of um, Italian atmos. It looks like it's about to rain. Andrew's in comfortably ensconced somewhere in Scotland, where it's also about to rain. In fact, let's hope it rains here because um, I've been coming to this part of the world for uh, 25 years or something. When we first started coming here, the things you knew about Piedmont, which is the area we're in is Rain, snow, um, and uh, fog. A lot of these cities around here, the towns like this, like Asti, they've got these arcades, these uh, covered arcades, beautiful arcades. If anyone's ever been to Turin, you'll see them, and they were designed to shield the populace from the incessant rain. Well, it hasn't rained this winter almost at all. There's a drought in this part of the world. Um, Fog. When we bought our place we didn't actually see what was on the other side of the valley for about four months because it was permanently socked in with fog again no fog this year and uh, snow well we've there have been times in the past where we dug out our car to get the children to school dug it out of the snow drifts um, and uh, again no snow this year and I mention it because the climate conversation is one that of course is going on in the background, but often in, in in our busy lives, it gets shoved to the edge of our awareness, um, which is why people like our guest to this episode, the fantastic Holly Cullen Davis, is so doing such great work. Holly, I met um, in a concert that she organised in the front room of my friend's house. She has a group which we'll talk about called uh, Concerts Don't Cost the Earth, and what she does brilliantly is is play the piano amazingly, and that creates a kind of wonderful, artistic, creative bubble in which to h- have the conversation that a lot of people find difficult about the climate. Um, we'll talk about that in our episode, and uh, we'll talk about also her musical road to here. She's a very accomplished musician. We'll also get to, um, we'll also get to hear uh, excerpts that Andrew Payne, our producer, is going to magically insert from the live podcast that we did with uh, Carl Honoré. Holly was a surprise guest there, and so great was her piano playing, we listened to it afterwards and we thought, you know what? Let's uh, let's do a special podcast with Holly. Um, and it was it was I think you'll find it was it was really well worth doing. Um, one thing we don't talk about. Um, is her friend Marcus. And uh, I woke up this morning, I was looking at an Instagram, her friend Marcus uh, Decker is in prison. He's been sentenced, along with another protester, for uh, causing a, what they call causing a disturbance, um, on a bridge in London, and is waiting sentencing. By the time this episode goes out, um, he will no doubt have received his sentence, and we wish him the minimum sentence. He's already been in prison for five years, Months. Let that let that sentence sink in. Marcus has been in prison for five months for causing a disturbance for, for raising the question of whether fossil fuels are a great idea for our the future of our planet. It seems to me it's a case of not just um, not killing the messenger, Andrew, but um, certainly jailing the messenger. Um, so if anyone wants to follow uh, Marcus and his wonderful messages, joyful, in fact, messages from jail. Um, you'll find him on Instagram and we'll put his his handle into the, uh, into the notes. But for now, let's, let's, through the magic of digital wizardry, we're going to go back in time to last week when uh, I met up with Holly and we talked about her, the piano and all things climate. Here she is, Holly Cullen-Davis. Enjoy, wanderistas! Tell us a bit about the inspiration for uh, concerts. Don't cost the earth, uh, and Tesla. Li- yeah, we'll talk more about it. But but where did that idea come from?
1: Good question. I can't remember exactly when I had the idea. Um, yeah. I have ideas every day, and I have to, um, you know, sort of rein myself in as to which ones I actually go ahead and do something with. Um, But I guess the idea came from the fact that I'd been doing a lot of concerts for the last 15 years. Um, Lots of concert series, lots of ideas, some things that are still going, some things that sort of petered out. But um, I've always loved the intimate concert. I've known that for a really long time. I, I love acoustic music. I like to go and see acoustic music. And ideally, where I can, where I'm right up close with the musicians, and you can hear the workings of the instrument. And so, nearly all the concert series I've done have been in fairly intimate spaces. Um, but working with venues is is complicated and difficult and expensive. And so, the idea of doing it in people's living rooms. I think came from just, you know, having done concerts in living rooms and been to concerts in living rooms. um, I thought this is perfect. This is how many people you know, between sort of 10 and 30 people roughly in someone's living room. This is how many people I want, because I want to be able to actually interact with everybody. And then obviously it's a pun. So concerts don't cost the earth the idea that it's not expensive either because I want music to be accessible to everybody and I think it's just a brilliant way to bring communities together. Um, But I've also been doing a lot of environmental work and activism over the last three years especially and I just desperately wanted to combine what I was doing musically with what I was doing environmentally. So that's where the idea came from.
0: Yeah, I mean, you describe on the website, it's beautifully described as we exist to start conversations about the climate crisis through the power of music. It's such a brilliant combination. And that certainly happened the night that we met. Um, say, maybe say a bit more about that. What do you think is the role that music can play in, in having what can be a difficult or emotional conversation or a conversation people are reluctant to have, perhaps for whatever reason?
1: Well, I've come to realize that I think in order to have those conversations we've got to get in touch with our emotions. Because if we can't feel, we can't have those conversations. We just want to shut out the feelings and you know not accept that we've got a problem. So we know that music evokes emotion and allows people to explore that and That's always the experience I've had doing concerts is, you know, people lighting up and feeling something. And in all the work that I've been doing, trying to talk to people about what we do about the climate crisis, um, I've realised that, yeah, the, the emotions got to come first. So I thought, well, if I can combine these two things, maybe we'll get somewhere. And we are. It's it just feels like so far the most successful thing that I've done to allow people to face the climate crisis and talk about it. And I think that's what, you know, that's what needs to happen is that people need to face it and then think about what they can do about it.
0: Say a bit more, if you would, about your, you and music, you know, you I do you think of yourself more as a pianist, more as a singer? Does it not matter? How long have you been doing it? Just say a little bit about your musical journey to here, maybe. I'm really interested.
1: Sure. I um, I feel really lucky to have had a very interesting music education and musical upbringing. Um, so I do think of myself more as a pianist in the sense that I've done way more training as a pianist. That's where I've really, really put in the hours and um you know, I feel more professional as a pianist, uh, even though these days I probably spend just as much time singing. Um, my mom was a musician um, when I was growing up. She was well, she was in theatre initially. So she um, she she sings very beautifully. She uh, plays various instruments, violin being her first. And when I was growing up, she was writing all the music for theatre companies. And um, I was going to those shows. And a lot of that music was influenced by music from other parts of the world, because all the shows were set in different countries. And so she was an ethnomusicologist, and she did lots of um, research, finding out about that. So I heard such a vast array of music growing up. Uh, My dad wasn't a musician, he's an artist, but he used to sing me to sleep at bedtime. And so I also got sort of the entire 60s and 70s pop catalogue growing up. So there was that. And then I was having piano lessons, studying the Suzuki method, which was very classical, um, with a brilliant Polish teacher called Kasia Boroviak. And then I went on to study um, in France and then at the Royal Northern College of Music alongside Manchester University. And then I did a master's at the Guildhall. And, And that was all... Um, that was all classical piano. And I did I sung in chamber choirs all the way through. I actually got a choral scholarship to Cambridge, which and then I didn't get in, <laughs> I didn't get onto the course, so I didn't go. Um, but that was my that was my music, my singing um experience at that point. And then after um, well, it was when my son was born ten years ago. Um, I formed a trio with my mum and my sister singing folk songs, really. So using my choral training, but in quite a different way, a different way of singing. And we're called Davis and Daughters, and we've been doing gigs um, as a three-part harmony trio since then. So, yeah, that's quite a lot, isn't it? I'm trying to think if I've left things out, but that's kind of, that's been my training and all the different experiences
0: I've had and it's, no. It's, it's it's beautiful, and it you know it sounds like music's in every part of your life. It it wasn't something you chose. Maybe it chose you somehow. But when you were <clears throat> a young pianist at the Guildhall, etc., was the dream to be a concert pianist? I mean, very often musicians have a kind of uh, you know uh, an imagined um, an intense strong intention. What, what what was if we'd met Holly? At the Guildhall, which is a those of you who don't know is a is, is an eminent music college in London. Would you have been thinking about being a concert pianist or something else? Do you think?
1: I think the dream was there, but I never actually wanted it enough. Not the traditional form, you know. When that when we say concert pianist, not the um, the career that others were we're fighting for we're we're really going for um I do call myself a concert pianist because I do concerts on the piano (laughs) um and you know there is there is a small part of me that still would really really like to play Rachmaninoff second piano concerto with a top orchestra yeah that would be amazing and maybe I should just learn it in case the opportunity ever arises (laughs) (laughs) um you know play it with my kids school orchestra or something but I you know I um I had I had various opportunities I did you know some competitions I did do some concertos and um I did play in some really big places I did you know play in the Royal Festival Hall and the Wigmore Hall and it wasn't I I didn't want that enough I think to really really um fight for against all the other you know wonderful pianists out there that also want that I realized quite early on Oh, as i said earlier that i really liked intimate spaces i was really most comfortable playing to you know sort of 30 people and i right. also i also didn't want to play all the repertoire that concert pianists are expected to play You know, i i didn't want to work my way through all the beethoven sonatas and all the chopin etudes and um all the schumann piano music there was a lot that i didn't really didn't feel inspired to play um and also, I didn't really want to preach to the converted. I didn't you know, feel inspired to play to the audiences that were going to be comparing me you know, to all the other classical pianists out there. What I really got a kick out of was introducing classical music to people mm. that mm. didn't usually hear it and putting it in spaces where you didn't usually hear it. So I did a lot of gigs quite early on where I was sort of the classical act in um, a sort of cabaret of other acts and I th- it it kind of blew people away and it blew me away as well to be able to you know play a piece of Debussy or a piece of Bach and those were my generally my favorites um you know alongside a singer-songwriter and a performance artist and um someone with a loop pedal you know and people doing Other things, and suddenly it just fitted in. And people said, "Wow, what was that piece of music?" And it didn't matter whether it was classical or not. It was a piece of music that was brilliant in that context, and that is what inspired me to start something called Live Junction, which I ran for five years. Um, And we did a lot of lot of different venues, Um, and I brought together it was it was all musicians, um, but all musicians from different backgrounds we had jazz musicians and folk musicians and musicians from other parts of the world. And we created these really interesting eclectic mixes um, inspired by Radio 3's Late Junction. And that was musically one of the most exciting things I've ever done and so much more enriching for, for me than playing a solo classical piano recital at the Wigmore Hall.
0: Uh, I, I must say I love that about you, watching you in action, that you're not bounded by kind of traditional categories and you seem to be, you know, you are you are really a musician across the board. It actually, it's, it's a good segue because what I'd love to do now is with the magic of Andrew's editing scissors and glue, we can hopefully go back a few weeks to uh, the podcast we were actually doing with, with uh, Carl Honoré, where you were uh, one of our, your special guests. And your performance is so great that we then decided, you know what, Holly, we need to do a podcast <laughs> with you specifically. But you started not with a, a classical piece. You started with a piece, I think, a Chick Corea piece. Um, could you just, uh, maybe we could listen to that now, but before we do, tell us a bit about it, about that piece.
1: Well, I went on a course when I was 18, um, which was, it was a, a serious classical piano course in Manchester, but um, there was a jazz teacher there and I was so nervous about playing jazz. I uh, I had been listening to it all through my teens, absolutely loving it, wishing I was a jazz pianist, but just finding it really difficult to break in to it and and. Have the nerve, you know, to ask musicians to play with me and just make lots of mistakes. Um, anyway, this teacher introduced me to Chick Career's 20 Children's Songs. And he said, This is a great way in because it is written down, but then you can improvise on it. Um, and I have to admit, I mean, I do improvise uh, at home sometimes, but I don't improvise on stage. I still haven't quite got over that block. Um, you know, I think you just have to do it a lot. I mean, you know that. <laughs> you just have to keep doing it and keep fucking up and be, be prepared to. Um, but but I love these children's songs and they are sort of, you know, a little bit of crossing the boundary between classical and jazz, even though I don't improvise on them live. And people love them. And they've been really, really nice to teach to students as well. Um, and this one in particular, number six, I think it's probably the hardest in the set and there are some great recordings out there of people doing all sorts of interesting things with it but it's become a little bit of sort of one of my one of my core repertoire that that people want to hear me play
0: I love that. I love that. And then I also, we'll, we'll hear another piece from you, which is a piece that I particularly asked you to play because you played it the very first time we met. And I didn't know, I think, I'm just checking. Do you, do you in your concerts not tell people what the pieces are? There's something lovely, refreshable like there's surprise in how you do it. I can't remember. Do, do you give people the titles or not before you play? I can't remember.
1: I often don't. I often don't, um, yeah, in all, in, in all the concerts I've, um, done over the years, that's often been a feature of it that I don't tell them until afterwards
0: because, yeah, well,
1: I I mean, I, I hate people looking at a program during the concert. I think that's a shame for them to be Mm. sidetracked. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm compelling enough as a pianist, uh, that people are just listening. Um, but also, as you say, I think there's an element of surprise if they don't know what's coming. Also, I think for a lot of people, a, a title doesn't mean anything. You know, if they don't know the piece already and, they, and the title isn't very interesting, Sonata, you know, what does that mean? So what's the point? You know, the, the reason I give them it afterwards is so that if they liked something, they can go and look it up. Um, I think that's really important, and obviously, I want to credit the composers. Um, but I think the element of surprise and also the juxtaposition of unusual things, because I do tend to program quite strange juxtapositions of pieces. <laughs> I don't necessarily play you know every movement of something, or uh, I certainly don't play things in chronological order very often. Um I like to put unusual segues into my programs. And I want people to feel those segues. I want them to feel the breath, the moment between the pieces and not know what's coming next.
0: I think it's really, really interesting. I, I love classical music and like you, I grew up within it, but I, I often see people go to concerts or to, uh, you know, performances and they're not really hearing what's happening. It's just triggering their memory of what they've heard before. And what comes next? They're not sort of. I, I, how do I know that? I can't get in their heads, but that's my sense. And what you do is you're putting in these kind of pattern interrupts, these kind of shockers. It's a bit like Max Richter's his, his mate, who I think I think that you know he recomposed the Four Seasons and played around with it because he felt that you know we've heard it so often, like in you can be going in a lift and there's some you know it's playing like music that you can't hear it anymore, so you have to. The surprises that you put in, the twists and turns, really make you hear. Uh, really make you hear the pieces, and certainly the piece. Well, we'll come to it in a bit. But the piece that you played uh, at our friend's place really blew my mind. Um, um, I think I spent the whole of your concert with my eyes closed. I really enjoyed sinking into it and rediscovering things. Uh, some pieces I knew, some some I did, many I didn't. But there was just something about this visceral, this visceral enjoyment of being in a small room filled with music. I was looking up during the break, I was looking at while you were playing, um, the word concert and what it means, and the etymology, it's interesting given what you do. Uh, It says, obviously it says a musical performance given in public, but it also says, um, uh, it says an agreement of harmony an agreement in design or plan, a union formed by mutual communication of opinion and views, which I think like Concord, like that idea of doing something together. And I think that brings me back to the driving force underneath um, Concerts Don't Cost the Earth. We're, we're planning to release this, uh, to drop this episode, to coincide with a big... Public action, demonstration, uh, uh, demonstration of passion, uh, in London on April the twenty-first, which I think is also Earth Day, um, done uh, led by Extinction Rebellion and others. Um, should we talk a bit about the the passion and also possibly the anger and, and the, the the frustration that's uh, that's driving some of your work in this area?
1: I just wanted to comment on um, that etymology of concert because I didn't know that, and that's really interesting. Um, and I always find it quite amusing that when I write the word concert in a text message, um, it quite often auto-corrects it to concept. It prefers the word concept to concert. And I, yeah, I just find that amusing because for me, a concert is always a concept. You know, it's, it's me. How can I do this differently? How can I come up with a new concept? in this one. Um, but gosh, yeah, moving on to April 21st and to, um, the thing that, the, the drive, the passion, the, the anger, the sadness, um, and the inspiration. I think, I think the frustration is that is two things firstly that people just simply don't know what's what's going on with the planet at the moment they they simply don't know the science they don't know what the senior scientific researchers are saying because it's not being reported on every day you know if you compare this crisis to the covid crisis simply in terms of what we're being told, I just cannot get my head round how governments and media think it's okay not to inform us of what the scientific advisors are saying. You know, as soon as COVID happened, we were, it was reported on every single day. The science was given to us. So, you know, there were lots and lots of um, reports on exactly how COVID worked, pictures, diagrams, and that allowed people to make the right decisions. And then, you know, and then they were told what what was necessary um, to stop the spread. And although some countries acted faster than others, in the end, you know, people acted. And I think what was really inspiring is, for me, I I just realised that people did care about each other at that point that was very obvious you know yes people cared about themselves as well and they were you know no, no one wanted to to catch it themselves but I, I really saw extraordinary communities coming together and people acting to save lives around them and to help others I mean it was just inspiring and I remember thinking at the time I mean really very early on in it I it was so obvious to me I thought this is a dress rehearsal this is planet earth this is Gaia giving us a dress rehearsal, a really nasty one. It was awful. You know, a lot of people died. But that was the dress rehearsal for the climate crisis from which a lot of people have already died and are dying as we speak, mostly in the global south and in countries where they're more vulnerable to the heat and the the drought and the famine. Um, But we do know that. We know that that's happening. And we know that it's because fossil fuels are fueling it, you know, that us burning fossil fuels is what's causing it. And that, you know, the scientists, they're, they're unanimous now. They're saying that every you know, percentage of a degree is absolutely critical and that going over 1.5, certainly going over 2, could have absolutely catastrophic runaway effects that could actually could be the end of all life on Earth. Of course, they don't know for sure. But I mean, when we do risk assessments in other parts of life, in, in medicine, in building bridges, in you know, flying aeroplanes, we don't take risks. If the scientists are saying, actually, this could be a disaster, we don't build that bridge, do we? We don't fly that aeroplane. We don't administer that drug. And the risk is here is like absolutely huge, and the answer is that we have to s- stop using fossil fuels. Not overnight, of course not, because that would also be catastrophic. But you know, the advice is that we've got to phase them out completely by 2030, and we're not. We know carbon emissions are still rising. We're just making a load. There's just a load of promises. So that, you know, that essentially is what fuels my need to act. Um, And I'm really fed up of signing petitions and going on marches um, and voting for the Green Party because I've been doing that all my life. Um, And my life, the last 40 years is basically spans the time that we've known about climate change. So if it hasn't worked in my lifetime, you know, now's the time to act. So that's where I've got to.
0: And when you, I hear you, and it's I feel you, I've, and I feel all sorts of frustrations. It's just maddening how we are sleepwalking into this, uh, into this you know dark, difficult, difficult place. Um, and I wonder the yearning to make an impact and take action. I wonder when you're. Working with something quite, in one way, quite gentle, like music. I mean, that's perhaps not doing music a service, but it's not a protest. Um, it's it, it's a more uh, harmonious, let's say, uh, activity for small people. Do you sometimes feel like that you actually want to fill Wembley Stadium and and have a larger impact, or do you is, do you have that kind of? Uh, It's a bit of a cliche, but this, you know, the starfish attitude, which is, you know, we do this person by person and small is small and profound is, is just as important as large and superficial.
1: My answer is that I think we need both. I, I think some people would fill Wembley Stadium and have everybody listening to them really effectively. And that would be great. I don't think that's my calling. I think we have to do what we're best at. I think we have to do something. I think everybody should be doing something and so I so I say to people you know if you if you're worried about it and you feel powerless find what you're best at and do that and that might be speaking to a, a room full of people it might be leading the way by doing something brilliant that's you're not telling people what to do you're just being the change you want to see and you know that obviously has an enormous effect um you know so changing your life might, might actually be your contribution um but I think I've tried a lot of different things you know I've been arrested I've climbed on an oil tanker um dropped banners and um I've talked to a lot of people and in the end you, yeah you've got to just land with what you feel is being most effective And what is something that you can continue to do without burning out? Because it was all very well climbing on that oil tanker. It will have had an effect, but I couldn't keep doing it for all kinds of reasons. You know, I have children. I it was it was very stressful. Uh, I had days and days in court um, and ended up with fines. So you can only kind of do something like that once, really. And. This is something I can keep doing. Mm. And this is something that more people can keep coming to. You know, we have different audiences every time for Concerts Don't Cost Mm. the Earth. Um, And I love performing. You know, most people don't, but I love performing. And um, the the most recent thing I've actually done is I've written a song called Subsidise the Trains because that's an area that I feel really strongly about. It's just surely a win-win, you know, is to well nationalize the train system for starters but make it much cheaper um so people can actually choose to do the right thing you know you can't tell people not to fly and not to drive if it's cheaper to do so quicker to do so and you're not providing an alternative but i mean trains are amazing and um in germany and in madrid they made it free or well, they made it 9 euros for a, a month of travel in germany in the summer i mean and and it was extraordinary. The results were amazing. Everybody actually took the train instead. And um, so I've written this song, Subsidise subsidize the Trains, and we're going to flash mob it in the run-up to the 21st of April and, and afterwards, I hope too, on trains uh, and get people to sign a petition to the government to nationalise the trains. And it's great. It's really easy to pick up and I'm hoping it'll go all over social media and people will pick it up in different parts of the country and perform it there too.
0: For now, I just think it's a perfect moment to go back to the concert and to hear the second piece, which I, I whispered in your "I'd love you to play." And I think, apart from it just being incredibly exciting, it seems to me it's got some of that. Uh, I don't know; it's not for me to say. Although perhaps it is because I'm the listener. You know, I feel it. 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 It shows some of your power, some of that frustration, some of your unstoppability, maybe. And and also the sheer joy of making, you know, making a noise. I, I love the I love this piece. What's it called?
1: <laughs> um it's called Danza del Gaujo Matrero. Um and I don't speak Spanish. Uh, it's, it's by the Argentinian composer Ginastera. Um, but it's the the dance of the outlawed cowboy. And it's the third dance in a set of dances argentinas. Um by Alberto Hinastera. And the first time I heard it, I just had to learn it. I heard Martha Argerich playing the whole set. And I don't always feel that immediately when I hear a piece, but that you know, one, I just said, I'm going to play that one day. Um, <laughs> and I've loved, I've loved learning it. I've loved playing it. I've played it a lot. Uh, it's really exciting. And thank you for, yes, your analogy of, of how it represents me. <laughs> I think that's great.
0: Take it away, Holly. I'm going to let you go into your busy but somehow beautifully balanced day. And before I do, I just want to ask, if I were sitting on this podcast and thought, I want, I want to do a concert that doesn't cost the earth. I, it sounds amazing. What, how, how would people how would people go about that?
1: The first thing to do would obviously be to go to the website concertsdon'tcosttheearth.org. There are three options on there, really. You can sign up to come to concerts, easy peasy. You can sign up to become a patron, which means that you help finance the whole project. And you can also sign up to host a concert, as you say, which is a really, really nice thing to do if you've got a space That you can bring people into it doesn't have to be huge it doesn't have to be tidy um, but if you're happy to bring people into your space and you can invite your local community to a concert I or some of the other musicians that I work with can come and do do a concert in your home and then what happens is you choose where you want the proceeds of the evening to go so you invite guests to pay what they can um, or what you think they can for the night and then you offer two environmental projects They have to be environmentally related um, where you would be comfortable for the money to go that evening. And you invite the audience to talk about that in the interval, have a discussion and choose and vote at the end of the evening. After they've listened to some lovely music, Um, they might have had a bit of wine or some food that you provide. And it opens up the discussion. And we've just had so many interesting projects that hosts have come up with um, during this series, uh, which means I've learned about, you know, Black Mountain College in Wales, which is a new university, which is teaching about sustainability, um, which I hadn't heard of before this. And um, Client Earth and Word Forest. And these are all organisations or charities that I hadn't heard of before. Small, you know, smaller than (laughs) Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and Extinction Rebellion. And it just encourages people to learn something new and then have a discussion and, and maybe they'll go off and support that afterwards as well.
0: So there she is, the unstoppable force that is Holly Cullen Davis, and all power to her. If you fancy uh, learning more about what she does, again we'll put the details into the notes. Um, As you know, as as if you are a if you're a regular listener, we end uh, our podcast. We we add a little section where you can uh, have a little exercise and take some of the ideas from our guest and put them into walking practice. Put them on their feet. See what I did there? Andrew, little pun. Um, but actually, it's it's, uh, it, it's not so much an idea of hers that I wanted to share with you, but something that, I, I was listening, you remember Marcus, I mentioned Marcus Decker at the beginning, um, and he just, he was just, he does these wonderful, even-tempered, joyful uh, messages from prison. He was talking about the fact that in the exercise space, um, there's a lot of litter he found surprising because um, it's where prisoners spend the precious time and yet they drop litter. So he's been picking up litter with his uh, his, his colleague and co-defendant, um, uh, Morgan. Uh, and so I thought it uh, links actually to what I noticed here, there's very little litter at the moment around, particularly in, in the countryside. It's because the, the, the practice of plogging has taken over in Italy and plogging is uh, jogging and picking up plastic as you go. Something that Andrew Payne tells me he does. It's something that I do a little bit of, but I'm gonna do more of. So um, rather than pausing the podcast, uh, we'll just take that way as an idea. Uh, as you're walking, pick up two, three bits of plastic. Otherwise, it'll be there for 10,000 years. Um, and I, just one final thought, uh, this episode, is timed to go out at the same time as a big uh, climate demonstration in London. Uh, and uh, let's, hope it, let's hope it has the desired effect. Uh, some of the powers that be don't seem to like disruption. In fact, that's apparently what um, uh, Marcus and Morgan were, were, have been criminalised for. All I would say is that two things, very obvious things. One is uh, protest is designed to create disruption, otherwise people don't thinking doesn't get disrupted and nothing changes and the second thing is as disrupting as it might have been to slow the traffic for a few hours in London I would suggest it would be a lot more disruptive to be trying to get to work wading through seawater which is liable to be the what happens unless we do something about (laughs) unrestricted uh, fossil fuel exploitation I don't know why I'm I'm sure a lot of you are not I don't know why I'm getting exercised here in the town square but it does seem to me insane to be doing what they're doing um on that note i will just say the path of the future is certainly not going to be a straight one so the more we can learn to wander and find joy in the wiggle the better so that starts now and uh continues with the next episode of wonderful which will be coming your way Hopefully, very soon. Until then, have a wonderful time. What I meant by that was wonderful time. Shall I do that again, Andrew? No, Andrew says I don't have to do it. Phew, okay, so goodbye. Andrew, I can't, I haven't got any sound. What are you mouthing to me, is it? Tell them about the new website, wonderfulpodcast.com. No, they're not going to be interested (laughs) in that. That'd be silly.